This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Wiser Books. Wiser Books is celebrating 60 years of publishing the very best in occult and esoterica. You can check out their extensive and inspiring range of reading material by going to wiserbooks.com. That's W-E-I-S-E-R books.com. Today's episode is brought to you by New World Witchery, a podcast and a website with hundreds of episodes and articles about North American folk magic and witchcraft. Its hosts, Corey and Lane, have been running New World Witchery for nearly 10 years, and it is a treasure trove of information, insights, and history about witchcraft practice and beliefs. I so admire the work they've been doing, and you will too. Be sure to check out the New World Witchery podcast and website at newworldwitchery.com. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave, and Happy New Year, everybody. I'm recording these words you're hearing now just on the hinge between the last year and this new one, and it's gotten me thinking about how much I love these liminal moments when we transform from one state of being into another. It's as if we're stepping through a doorway that connects our past to our future, and crossing over is always a bit of a leap of faith. We trust that when we enter this portal, it will take us into a new phase of existence, and one which brings us a whole new set of lessons, challenges, and gifts. This is why so many deities of thresholds and gateways have been meaningful to people throughout history. Janus is a Roman god with two heads which face in opposite directions. He is said to be a guardian of transitions, doorways, and passages, and he watches over beginnings and endings. One of my favorite stories about Janus tells of him taking on a lover named Cardia. As a gift to her, Janus makes Cardia the goddess of the door hinge, and he gives her the power to prevent malevolent spirits from entering doorways. We've talked before on the show about the connection between witches and owls, and the ancient Romans believed in the Strix, or Stria, which was a vampiric, child-killing screech owl, sometimes believed to be a witch in disguise. And this is most likely how the Italian word for witch, or strega, came into being. 
But interestingly, it was Cardea, the goddess of the door hinge, whom the Romans would invoke to protect their children from these monstrous bird women. As I sit here on the hinge of 2019, I'm thinking about what else I would like Cardea and Janice to bring into being for this new year. Protection from harm and evil spirits, absolutely. But I also ask these deities to guide us both as individuals and as a global community to help us metamorphose from a state of fear into a state of open-mindedness and open-heartedness. 2018 was a very trying year in many respects, but it also felt like a year about planting new seeds and putting our heads down to do important work on our politics, our art, and ourselves. My wish for us all is that in 2019, we will begin to see the fruits of our labor and to be able to enjoy them. Our hard work won't stop, but I hope that in this coming year, we are able to take more pleasure in the making of things and in the enjoyment of them. May we also pause more and play more. May we turn into more lit up and delighted versions of ourselves. Speaking of transformations, my guest today, Madeline Miller, is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling novel, Circe, which is about one of the most famous transformative deities in all of literature. Circe is the Greek witch demigoddess that Homer wrote about in the Odyssey, though in Miller's fantastic feminist version, she is so much more than a sorceress who turns Odysseus's men into pigs. On this episode, she and I discuss the importance of witches, the magic of writing, and so much more in our conversation. But before we get to that, First, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Reba writes, My cat seems to really like to be involved in any magical things I do. I cast a circle. She runs in the middle and flops at my feet or sits on my lap. I dedicate a tool. She's there and rubs herself all over it. She watches me grind herbs with mortar and pestle. I said, so mote it be, as a joke to my partner, and she popped out from underneath the couch, meowing as loud as she could. She's part Siamese, so pretty loud. Should I allow this to continue? I really love and am delighted by my cat, but I worry I'm, quote, doing it wrong, especially with her running in and out of the circle and rubbing on the tools. Hi, Reba. Well, this will probably come as no surprise to anyone who follows me online, but I am absolutely pro-cat in most areas of my life, and certainly when it comes to magic. There's a long tradition of association of witches with animals, 
the cliche of a witch being accompanied by a cat, owl, toad, or other animal comes from a combination of folkloric beliefs and myths, which are more numerous than we have time to discuss here, but we'll definitely be exploring in future episodes. But as a very quick summary, you may have heard of something called a witch's familiar, which is an animal or imp that was believed to assist a witch in her spell casting or other magical errands. On a related note, there are many beliefs that witches could turn themselves or other people into animals, but I'm assuming that's not what you and your feline familiar are up to. In my household, we have two cats, a boy and a girl named Albie and Remy, and both of them are magical little creatures in different ways. But Remy in particular loves whenever I do any kind of ritual, and she always insists on being in the room with me. She absolutely sometimes meows or rolls around or makes her presence otherwise known while I'm in the middle of a spell, and I absolutely love it. Whether she's picking up on energies or curious new scents, or she just likes keeping me company, I feel like her presence is contributing in some way. So it sounds to me like your feline familiar is super responsive and sensitive to magic too, and that's such a lovely thing. So I would absolutely just let her continue and think of her participation as an extra blessing or happy additive to whatever magic you're making. And I just want to say that in general, I totally understand your concern about doing it wrong when it comes to witchcraft, but I hope that the more you listen to this podcast, the more freed up you'll be from that kind of thinking. Because as my guests have shown us, and as I try to talk about as often as possible, there really truly is no one right way to do magic. And in my experience, the most potent magic is the most personal and personalized. To my mind, the otherworldly activities of your kitty is just one more example of your magic getting infused with your own love and your own life, and that's only going to help make your workings more powerful. Thanks for your question, and send my very best to your furry friend. Now, on to my guest. Madeline Miller is a theater director and a classic scholar specializing in Latin, Greek, and Shakespeare, but you probably know her as the author of the beloved and best-selling novels Circe and The Song of Achilles. Both of her books are offshoots of Homer's Greek myth epics, The Iliad and The Odyssey, Though in Miller's versions, side characters are centered and given more fully fleshed out stories that feel contemporary, complex, and crystalline. Her newest book, Circe, brings into focus the titular divine witch woman who became Odysseus's lover after transforming his crew into swine, though that episode is just a small sliver in Miller's masterful reimagining. It was a dream come true to get to speak to one of my all-time favorite authors about witchcraft and the craft of creating art and life. 
Madeline joined me from her home in Pennsylvania via Skype. Madeline Miller, welcome to The Witch Wave. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I am over the moon to be speaking with you and so grateful to you for taking the time. As I've told you off air, you have written two of my absolute favorite books. So I am deeply, deeply honored to have you on the show. Thank you again. Oh, thank you so much. So we are primarily going to be talking about witches and about your beautiful newest book, Circe. But I will probably bug you about The Song of Achilles as well, because I love that book (laughs) too. I hope that's all right for you. Absolutely. Terrific. So I want to actually start with talking about pronunciation and Mm -hmm. language, because I want to get this right, since we're going to be talking about your work for a little while here today. Can you tell me and our listeners how to pronounce this amazing deity's name, first and foremost? Sure. So there's the modern day English pronunciation, which is what I went with for the book, which is Circe. But the original Greek is Kirke. So it's the hard C sound. And all of those C's that have gone into English were originally hard C's in both Latin and Greek. And so we don't say Kaiser and we don't say Cicero. We say Caesar and Cicero. And so it's just become sort of a the convention to do it that way. But I do love the Greek as well. That's so helpful. And when modern pagan people like myself are invoking some of the names of certain deities. I don't know if you have an opinion on this, but are there certain Greek words or Greek deities that you hear us say wrong all the time? So for example, I'm often invoking Hecate, the (laughs) goddess of magic and witchcraft, but I would love to be corrected if I'm saying that wrong. No, you got it. That sounds great to me. The only one that I I hear people really get tongue-tied over is actually Circe's sister, Pacifiae, but she has a four-syllable name instead of three syllables, which is what I often hear people do, but I don't have a lot of worries about stuff like that. But yeah, I don't hear a lot of people really, you know, mispronouncing stuff. Oh, good. I haven't been saying that wrong. I love, <laughs> I love that. You're giving me much more confidence. So, Let's start with a question I'm sure you answer all the time, but hopefully we'll go in much more interesting and winding directions. Circe is this character that I tend to think of as minor in that she doesn't get a lot of airtime in Mm -hmm. the Odyssey and in some of the places that she showed up. What was it about her that made you say, yes, I want to devote I think I read you uh, say somewhere seven years of your life yeah. <laughs> yeah, to telling her story or a version of her story. Well, it really goes back even further than those seven years, because my first sort of encounter with Cersei, which I think ended up being the, the seed of the novel, was when I was 13. It was the first time I had read the Odyssey all the way through by myself with my own translation. Um, we were all reading it in English class. And it got to the Circe episode and I was really excited. I sort of knew her because I knew Greek mythology. So I knew that there was this witch who turned men into pigs. And I was really excited because there's so few female characters that have that kind of strength and power in Greek mythology that are not then punished for it later. Mm -hmm. Her story does not end in terrible disaster for her. And so 
that was really interesting to me. She's clearly smart. The gods are a little bit afraid of her as well. And so all that was very interesting. And then it comes to the scene where she's turned Odysseus's men into pigs. And then Odysseus comes to confront her. And I thought, well, wow, this is going to be a really interesting scene. They're going to talk to each other. He's smart. She's smart. They're both complicated. But what happens in the text is actually incredibly disappointing. What happens is that he pulls his sword on her and threatens her. And she goes from this figure of great power to screaming, falling to her knees, begging for mercy and inviting him into her bed in like one speech. As one does. Yeah, right. And <laughs> like the phallic sword, the kneeling at his feet, it just it was so frustrating to me as a young female reader looking in, at this and saying, wow, here's this one female character who, who has power and is really interesting. And she sort of immediately has to be put into her place. So that was that was a piece of it. Circe does not kneel in my novel to Odysseus. <laughs> um and they come to an understanding in a, in a very different way. And I, I really wanted to kind of keep the camera on her and explore her perspective. And the Odyssey is so drenched in the male heroic perspective in general. But that section in particular is actually narrated by Odysseus to someone else. And so I thought, wow, this is a really self-serving story. You know, I tamed this witch and then she threw herself at me. And it's this thing that's all designed to make Odysseus look really good. So it felt really easy to kind of say, well, let's strip that away. Let's strip Odysseus's ego trip out of the way and try and imagine this woman who lives on her island with lions and wolves and can do magic. I love that. And speaking of magic, and also kind of getting back to language, I remember reading that the name Circe translates to sorceress. In your book, you say it means hawk. So mm -hmm. what step was I missing there? Was I just told the wrong thing? Well, I think it has come to mean sorceress because she is a sorceress. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes you'll hear people say like, oh, she's a Circe, meaning like she's a witch. So I think it has come to be used that way. Or at one point, I think in Shakespeare, they talk about like a Circean drink, meaning a drink that can transform your mind. And obviously not directly of Circe, but that it's sort of implied that it's all this witchcraft stuff is connected with her. Got it. So it's an allusion to her. Yes. And in the Greek, there are sort of two possibilities. One is hawk or falcon, and the other is is kind of hoop or circle. And those two are actually etymologically related because hawks and, and falcons sometimes circle. And so also people have looked at that as sort of a, a connection to witchcraft, sort of drawing the circle with her name. And and of course, it's that's where we get the word circle in English too. Wow. And of course, there's covens and circles of witches and dancing in circles. And yes. now I'm thinking of the beginning of Macbeth, where they're talking about, <laughs> oh, I'm going to completely mangle the quote. I'm sure you knew, know it better. But isn't there some circular? Yes. Yes. And the charms wound up, the winding and the circular motion. That's so fascinating. And can we dive into your choice also to use the word witch. And again, mm -hmm. this is a self-serving question because as someone who explores the archetype of the witch through this show and my own writing, it's become very clear to me that this word means so many different things. It's so elastic. And the fact that you chose to use that word in your book made me so very happy. And when you connected it to this word, Pharmakis, am I pronouncing that mm -hmm. correctly? Yes, pharmakis. Yep. Pharmakis, which 
my understanding is it's one stripe of many different kinds of magic. It's Mm -hmm. like the potion and poison stripe of magic. Yes. And so can you talk a little bit about your decision to use the word witch in this novel? Sure. Well, Cersei is so much the incarnation in, in the Odyssey of male anxiety about female power. If women have power, look what's happening. Men are being turned into pigs. And it's not until sort of the man comes along and, you know, pulls out his sword that order is restored. And as I feel like that that is really what witches have sort of been, they have often been along with the work they may be doing as herbalists and that kind of stuff. They have really been women who have had more power than men have felt comfortable with them having. And that women like that have always drawn that label. And it's still in use today. I mean, what's shocking is how often that is still used as a derogatory word for a woman with power. A hundred percent, especially women who speak in public. Like I feel like female politicians are often called witches. Anyone who has any kind of ambition or public power, it seems to get that a lot, I've noticed. Yes, yes. And so it felt really important to use that word because I think she is kind of the first in this long line of women whose power makes the society around them uncomfortable. I could have used sorceress, but that just felt like a really primal and important word. And as you say, she kind of comes from that, you know, the word that Homer uses for her is someone who's skilled with many drugs, herbs, potions. And you're right, she comes out of that stripe. But I I sort of felt like she is the first witch in Western literature. Let's call her that. Hell yes. And I'm so (laughs) glad that you did. Now, can you give us a tiny primer on what Homer or people in Homer's time might have thought of in terms of magic? Did they literally think that the gods were doing magic? Was that the word that they would have used? And and were there indeed people during that time period who were believed to be magicians? Or is it all of this linguistic soup again, when it comes to our understanding of magic and witchcraft? Yes, it's very difficult to parse it out. So the stuff that Zeus and Hera and Athena and those gods could do where they could transform themselves into a swan or transform someone else into a cow, that was divine power and it was not witchcraft. It came from sort of their ability as gods. So I don't really call it magic because I sort of have reserved in my own mind magic for witchcraft. It is divine power. Mm. And then witchcraft and, and magic, the sort of big witches of mythology are Circe, Aetes, her brother, and then Medea, his daughter. Mm-hmm. Those are sort of the big ones that, that show up. But then in later times, and absolutely the ancients believed in magic and, and witchcraft, and people were often very afraid of witches and of being cursed, because the two sort of, by the time you get to the Romans, the two primary things that were associated with witches, and of course, this is all, unfortunately, all we have are sort of like the writings of men who were definitely not witches, (laughs) and who were afraid of witches. So this is all being filtered through their perspective, which is certainly extremely biased. But Horace's description of witches is that they're interested in love charms and in curses. And those are the sort of two things that they do. And he makes them these sort of repulsive figures. They're much more the hag type, kind of the Macbeth type. Yep. And they have kind of 
repulsive ingredients than they do sort of repulsive things. But there's also like a comedy to them because I think he's trying to portray them as a little bit bumbling to kind of take away his fear of their power. So it's a very biased portrait. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it makes me think too of the ways in which I was doing magic when I was like experimenting as a teenager where all my initial spells were about love or they were Mm -hmm. about, and I'm not proud of this, but getting back at people who like scorned me or who didn't love me back or who hurt my feelings. I do not do that kind of practice anymore for the record. Um, (laughs) But it was interesting to see that Circe as if you will, a teen witch kind of starts Mm -hmm. her magic out of that same place of rejection or wanting love and, and then what happens when she doesn't get the love and all of that. And to watch her own magic mature, even as a metaphor for the ways in which we certainly as women, but all people hopefully learn to come into our own power where it's not just about I'm going to do magic or I'm going to live my life in ways that only serve me or come from that space of ego. I want to be in service to something higher and hopefully come from a place of compassion. So it was really wonderful to see her own development through your story. Well, thank you. Well, You know, I think everyone goes through that when they're young is those feelings of wanting so much to be loved and feeling like that's the most important thing and the highs and lows of teenage passion. And then hopefully moving through that, as you say, to something larger and not so self-focused. So speaking of moving to something larger, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to talk much more about the gods and Circe. Vera Meat makes clothing and accessories for fashion witches who like their whimsy with a bit of a bite. This New York City-based line features symbols like teeth, swords, goddesses, and dinosaurs, all made out of fine materials such as 100% recycled sterling silver and pure 14-karat gold. And now you can get 40% off everything on their site, from their witty and magical jewelry and pins to their wickedly illustrated clothing by using offer code WITCH today. So check them out at veramate.com. That's V-E-R-A-M-E-A-T dot com and use code WITCH for 40% off their jewelry, pins, clothing, and so much more today. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Madeline Miller. So Madeline, we were talking about Circe, of course, and she's the star, the protagonist of your beautiful new book. And as a magic worker or a witch, she has a lot of time on her island alone. There's this real solitary, almost insular period of her life where she starts to really grow into her own witchcraft. And I couldn't help but think about the solitary time that writers and all creative people need. And I was wondering when you were writing her as a character, how much you were also thinking about her as a creative person in the same ways that you're a creative person. Um, very much. I will confess that the first draft through in sort of the section where she's really learning her witchcraft and kind of 
what has to go into that. I was not thinking about my writing. And then I kind of reread it and I was like, oh, this sounds really familiar. (laughs) (laughs) But what I did know I wanted from the beginning is I knew that I wanted this to be her vocation and her craft to be a really significant part of the story. I think that so often women's lives have been kept out of epic poetry in the ancient world. They were considered not important. You know, epic is really an exclusively male genre. There are a few female characters that pop up here and there, but it's it's interested not only with men, but with traditionally male things, things like battle and inheritance and vengeance in the male sphere. And one of the things that I I think doesn't really get talked about because it's considered more traditionally female is that type of craft, you know, really devoting yourself to learning and becoming really skilled at something. We see a little bit of that. We see a reference to Penelope as a skilled weaver in the Odyssey, but it's, it's really kind of just a side thing. And so I was really interested in this woman who has a vocation and who really cares about it and to make that a significant part of, of her character. And I certainly identify with a lot of her struggles <laughs> in my own life because I, I feel like it is part of the creative path, is sort of that ability to tolerate failure and to try again. Yes. But one of the things I love about witches is that they sort of straddle this line between being these isolated outsiders and then finding their own kind of weird communities or weird Mm -hmm. families, whether it's a coven or a chosen family or choosing to have a biological family on their own terms. And I really loved that you touch on this in your book. And I really don't want to give too much away plot wise, because for those who haven't read it, they are in for such a treat. But were you thinking also about some of those things in terms of the shift from a family that might be insufficient somehow, which I would say her family was? Yes, (laughs) the family and community that she cobbles together for herself? Yes, I think that so often, really, in some ways, I think this happens to everyone, although the amount that it happens depends on on what your family is like. But we're all born into our family situations. And those for our childhood, that's the whole world. That's all we know. And we take that as everything. And then at some point, we realize that we're actually on an island and we get on a boat and we sail away. And we look back and all of a sudden we have perspective and we might visit someone else's island and realize that their family does things completely differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you start to realize, like, what are the things about my family that are really strange or maybe bad um, or maybe really nice? I mean, in Cersei's case, her family are sociopathic narcissists. So that's bad. (laughs) She's very happy to sail away from them and sort of realize that the reason I felt alienated all these years is because they are in fact horrendous. But as she sails away, I, I feel like part of that process is finding, particularly for people who have that kind of abusive background or very challenging background, is finding your family out in the world and sort of finding who are the people who can really understand you since your family can't. And the finding of that community and that arc was a really important piece of of Cersei's story is that she has spent so much time alone looking for people who will understand her. Yes. Oh, so, so beautiful. I was also struck by some specifically, I'll say, cisgendered female experiences that you represent. There's a birth scene that is 
I hope I'm not giving too much away by saying it's pretty grisly. <laughs> Let's just leave it there. And I, I'd love to hear you talk about why you decided to include some of those experiences in the novel. Well, I think it, it came out of that same impulse as really wanting to give weight to her craft. In the mythology, Circe is a mother. So therefore, that is a piece of her identity. Epic, ancient epic as it stands is very much about death and war. And, you know, the Iliad literally has sort of entire books that are, and then like he stabbed this guy and then this guy died and his brains came out the back and his teeth exploded and it went through, the spear went through. I mean, it's like really gruesome, gruesome, gruesome stuff. Mm. But I think an incredibly epic experience also in life that is not covered in ancient epic is birth. Whether you are experiencing it yourself in your own body or supporting someone else through it or witnessing it or showing up at someone's house when they've just given birth. I feel like that epicness is all around it. <laughs> yeah. And you are creating a new person and you are sort of there for, for this very physical struggle and amazing, amazing event. And so it, it felt incredibly important to me to make that part of the story. But birth has been left out because it's traditionally female. You know, I didn't want that to get erased. I mean, I think in general, women's lives have been considered just not that interesting. Exactly. But I think they're incredibly interesting. <laughs> and so I wanted to, you know, give all these moments of Cersei's life their full weight. Can we talk about sex? Because you write yes. <laughs> beautiful scenes of intimacy um, and intimacy that we don't often see centered. You know, I'm thinking of queer love and mm -hmm. sensuality, which you wrote about in the Song of Achilles. Circe, you know, she gets her rocks off several times in the book, which I very <laughs> much appreciated. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> when you're writing about sex, what sort of things are you thinking about? How do you keep it from being just, just, or how do you make it good? <laughs> that, that's my question. How do you make writing about sex good and not overexploitative? And what are you looking for when you're reading about sex or writing about sex? And why was it important for you to include some of those scenes in both of your books? Well, for me, I think both of, of these novels are first person narrators. And so for me, I always want to know how would this person talk about sex if they if they were telling their own story? How much would they tell? How would they look at those scenes? And I always wanted to be part of their character development. So if a character wouldn't talk about it, then I, I wouldn't put it in. It has to sort of serve something that they really want to say. And I felt like Patroclus's love for Achilles is it's romantic, it's sexual, it's sensual. And that bond between them and the sensual bond is incredibly important. And I, I think that the moment in particular, I think that the longest sex scene in, in the book is when they initially get together and that that is such a huge moment for him, both as, you know, a queer person's recognizing, I want to be with this person, but also in terms of his relationship to Achilles, that it felt like he would want to tell it and he would want to tell the significance that it had to him and how it was really a turning point in, in his life. So things like that, I tried to be guided by how would he look at it. And same thing with Cersei. She is not as 
descriptive and she doesn't have sort of a long sex scene the way that Achilles and Patroclus do because I think she she's a type of character that's not going to give you the blow by blow yeah but <laughs> she is very open about her desire and her sexuality and I think she's she's very honest about sort of the role that those moments of you know sexual connection play in her life and she's very savvy about that um, and understanding, at least in retrospect, what she was wanting in those moments. And so I tried to put all that in. And and of course, it, it was important to me that she's this woman who has sexual desire. And so, of course, I want her to express that. I appreciated it, not just because I get a kick out of reading it, but also because, <laughs> like I said, it's becoming less rare, but I, I still think it's pretty radical to show sex and desire and intimacy through the lens of non-cis male straight dudes. I mm -hmm. really, really mm -hmm. appreciate that. And we talk on the show a lot about shamelessness and the witch as a figure of shamelessness. Yes. Yeah. And and so the fact that she has partners and there isn't a lot of shame around it was something I deeply, deeply appreciated. Well, thank you. I, I did not want her to have any shame because I think she has moved beyond that. And, you know, that's something that she kind of fights to rid herself of, the feelings of shame that her family sort of placed on her. Absolutely. Now, I've read you describe the Song of Achilles as a retelling of the Iliad, where Circe, you've stopped calling it a retelling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that, um, especially because it strikes me that maybe I'm projecting here, but I would think it would take a lot of confidence as a writer to be able to move from, okay, I'm telling this story from a different perspective to, you know what, I'm going to tell a new version of a story that people think they're familiar with. Did you feel that kind of evolution as a writer between the retelling of one story and the, I don't know, expanding of another story, if, if that's the right language for it? Yes, um, I did. I, I felt a big shift. I think with Song of Achilles, I was was a classics graduate student. I was very concerned about being faithful to the text. I mean, even, even though in some sense I had a very strong opinion, which was that Achilles and Patroclus are lovers, that's the interpretation I'm following. And I felt that very strongly. But I also, you know, it was very hard for me to leave even very small stuff out when I made changes I really wanted them to be very deliberate and, and I sort of sweated over them <laughs> sometimes. Sure. But I, I think what I came to understand is that these myths and these stories really belong to everybody. And I think even calling Song of Achilles a, a retelling of the Iliad is, is in some sense not accurate either because the Iliad only covers a very short period of time. And Song of Achilles is maybe more of like a prequel <laughs> yeah, to yeah. the Iliad. It, it tells the Iliad, but so much of the, the novel is is the lead up to the Iliad. And then it goes beyond the Iliad as well. It sort of goes way before and then follows after. But I think I was trying to write very close to Homer so that I was sort of in dialogue with Homer. So when I changed it, I was always kind of talking to Homer with Song of Achilles with Circe. I felt a lot more freedom, partially because the section in the Odyssey with Circe is so small. And so, you know, I knew I was going to tackle a few things that happen, Penelope and, and Odysseus that happen sort of later in the Odyssey. But basically, the Odyssey is about Odysseus and, and Circe isn't in most of it. And so just like she is a cameo, I wanted him to be a cameo in her story. 
And so I sort of felt free to range around. And there are only really four myths about her in the literature. And other than that, I kind of had freedom. And it was great. <laughs> it was wonderful to use that freedom and and to really find my way through her story kind of from the inside. You know, I wanted this to be a, a psychological portrait of this woman coming into her power. That's so excellent. And speaking of psychological power, I want to ask you a bit more about yourself after a quick break. Longtime listeners to the podcast know that I am obsessed with Mithras candles. They are the most beautiful beeswax candles I have ever seen, and they're handcrafted in Philadelphia. Mithras candles smell intoxicating, and they look even better with their wizardly dripped pillars. They also come in a variety of other shapes, from pyramids to tapers to tea lights, and they give off a warm and gentle glow. I have tons of Mithras candles, and I can't get enough. And now you can get some too by going to MithrasCandle.com and using offer code WITCH for 10% off your first order of 2019. So go to Mithras Candle, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use code WITCH for 10% off your first order of the year. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Madeline Miller. So Madeline, I'm very interested not only in your incredible characters, but also in you and how the process of being steeped in divine power and steeped in magic may or may not have been influencing your real life. I'm not sure where you fall on the spiritual spectrum or how much you even care to talk about that, but when you're spending so much time with these divine beings, did you start having any kind of synchronicities or I don't know if you would call them spiritual or magical experiences of their presence in your real world day-to-day -day life? In some sense, yes, because I, I think that I when I go into characters and I and I write from inside a character, it really feels like I'm inhabiting them, they're inhabiting me. It's sort of this full body, you know, I need to be able to see through their eyes. And so it's kind of like an, an actor getting into character, or maybe it's like ecstatic possession. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One of those. Or channeling. Yeah, that, that, you know, it really feels like we're occupying the same space in that time. And so I spent a lot of time thinking as Cersei and sort of inhabiting her. And part of the reason I think it took me seven years is I had spent 10 years with Patroclus and living so closely inside his story and having him sort of live inside me that it took me took me a couple of years to like say goodbye wow. <laughs> and, and let, let Patroclus go and welcome Cersei in and really be able to listen to her voice and hear her voice and develop that voice. And so I spent a lot of time in the first five years writing and throwing away and writing and throwing away and trying things out. And is she like this? Does the book begin this way? Does it begin this way? Does she have three siblings? Does she have two siblings? All this stuff. And then I think the the moment that actually feels like magic for me is this moment when, you know, I had hundreds and hundreds of pages of just junk, like things I'd written and said, you know, this is terrible and written and said, this is terrible. And I took a little break and I came back to it 
and I read through it and it was like gleaming <laughs> there on the page. I could see like, you know, this sentence and this sentence and this sentence. And that's my first chapter. I'm going to build it around those ideas and everything else is, you know, it's like panning for gold. Mm. But that coming together, people often ask me about that moment, that sort of moment of like when I knew I had the voice. And it, it does really feel like magic. It feels like this thing just pops into being for me. A minute ago, I was completely struggling and now I, I, I have Cersei's voice and I'm still going to struggle with how to tell her story and all those things. But at least I feel like I know who she is. She's now with me. And oftentimes it starts for me with literally the first sentence of the book, that once I have the first sentence of the book, then I can sort of go, go from there. So it, it does. It, it, feel, it feels it's sort of that mysterious creative process that it, it feels very indescribable. <laughs> mm, mm. I'm so happy that you brought up acting and theater because I wanted to ask you about your experience as a director, and I know you do dramaturgy, but I'd love to hear more about that because I often hear you in the context, of course, as a novelist. But what is it about theater and the classics that you enjoy bringing to life? Why have you been so attracted to these stories and to the theatric tradition? Because a lot of the Greeks, I don't have to tell you this, but certainly comes out of this great tradition of, of theater and performance and that fuzzy space between magic and performance too. I was going to say, speaking of magic, I feel like theater, there is this amazing thing that happens when you bring an audience in and you have this play that you've worked on and rehearsed and the designers and the actors and all the people who who have been working together and the director to tell the story. And then there they are and they're going to tell it and the audience is going to sit and be there face to face with the story. You can videotape it, but it's never the same in the yep. videotape. <laughs> so true. So true. My husband's a playwright. So, oh, I've so seen, you know. <laughs> yes. And I've seen such incredible theater, certainly that he's made that felt like magic, mm -hmm. but then would be recorded and it, it just flattens it so much. It doesn't have that in person electricity. Yes. That's just the right word for it. That there is something, this transformation that happens where you're completely living inside the place. So I, I love doing that. And it feels very much like writing in a sense, except you have all these other people there to make the story with you, which is really wonderful. But then it's also wonderful that then you go into the world of novel writing and you get to control everything. And, you know, yes. the, the, the upside is you get to control everything. But then the downside is it's just you. <laughs> you don't have any help. Yes. And I will say, as someone who lives with a playwright, that writing is a lot less expensive to do than <laughs> producing theater. Oh, my goodness. And have you been doing any theater recently? I haven't, sadly. I would love to get back to it. I have two young children and I've been writing. So between those two things, I have not been able to, to do much theater, but I am thinking about theater for my next novel, which is inspired by, I think, The Tempest. I love that, I think. So we haven't <laughs> committed to this yet, but <laughs> we have likely. We'll have this other project that's sort of bubbling away. And so I've learned not to claim which one's going to come next because I have no control <laughs> over sure, like sure. what's going to come together. So that was me hedging. <laughs> now I'm going to offend my other project. <laughs> but I, I do love The Tempest. And, you know, it is also about 
witches and magic and you know islands yes and sycorax is so if i'm remembering correctly she's like yes. barely in the tempest the witch yeah she's actually not in it at all she's only referenced and she's described very vividly by prospero and by ariel the spirit and then by her son caliban mm-hmm. but yeah she's she never comes on stage it's this amazing sort of absence ah oh. I don't know why I just got chills when you said that phrase, amazing absence, but for what it's (laughs) worth, I'm sharing that with you. And it's interesting, I wasn't expecting to bring this up, but I'll just say it's interesting that you bring up The Tempest because getting back to theater, some of the most magical experiences I've had as an audience member, I can like count on two hands if I'm being generous, like those really transcendent experiences. And and one of them was seeing The Tempest at classic stage. And Mm -hmm. there was this wedding scene that felt like an alchemical process right before our eyes. Mm -hmm. It was actually Mandy Patinkin was in it and there was beautiful singing and it was just so gorgeous. So thank you for reminding me of that. It's amazing. That sounds like an incredible production. Yeah, it, it was beautiful. And it is amazing what theater can do. How do you decide what project is going to be next for yourself? When did The Tempest start talking to you? Actually, in the middle of Circe. And so I I had sort of hit a wall with Circe. And I took a little break and cheated on Circe with The Tempest for a while. Um, <laughs> scandal. <laughs> scandal, I know. I think it's Jeff Dyer who says he always needs to have one project and the project he's cheating on that project with. And that that sort of <laughs> enables him to go back and forth. But it was very helpful because I love digging into The Tempest, but I think it also helped clarify. And so when I came back from it, to Cersei. That was sort of when I had my epiphany about about Cersei. So we'll see. It feels a little bit out of my control. It feels like I just have to show up and keep trying to write and then eventually something will ignite. How, how do you stay anchored? And I know you were thinking about Cersei for much longer, but seven years is a long time to be focused on the same piece. What kept you anchored? What was it that kept you going back? Is it something that feels magical or spiritual or something bigger than you? Does it feel that out of your control? I think it is always my dedication to the character's story because Achilles, the song of Achilles took me actually 10 years. So seven years felt like I was getting some time off. (laughs) But in both cases, I, I think there was this real feeling of I struggled with this more actually with Song of Achilles because I had never written a novel. I was happy in my career. I was a teacher. I was a Latin teacher. I was a theater director. But there was a part of me that just felt compelled to tell this story. And I would say, well, why am I banging my head against this wall? I'm completely happy. I don't need to write this novel. But I couldn't let it go. I felt like Patroclus' story and Achilles' story needed to be in the world the way I wanted and it sort of felt like I would be giving up on on Patroclus <laughs> um, yeah. if I if I gave up. And I think it was the same thing with Cersei that I felt like this was something that I was so passionate about seeing in the world, and that it's it's the character that always draws me back. Mm, well, I'm so glad that you kept coming back to these characters. And I know I speak for many, many, many people who feel the same way. We are just winding down on our time together. But quickly, 
I heard some rumors about a potential, was it television series or film series of Cersei? Is that anything that you're able to talk about or is that just rumors and whisperings? <laughs> no, there is. So here's what I can say. I can say that the rights were purchased for Cersei to develop as a television miniseries, which I was really thrilled by. I think that is absolutely the right format. Yes. You know, when you're an eternal being, I feel like you you need multiple hours <laughs> <laughs> to tell your story. And I felt really good about the people who bought the rights. There's going to be an official announcement eventually, but they really understood the book and they were passionate about the parts of the book that I was particularly passionate about. And they understood it and they found some writers who really understand it. And so I am crossing my fingers. I know that as the writer, I have absolutely no control. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And I never know things get made or don't get made. I have no idea. But I gave it to people that I really felt like understood it. That is so exciting. And as someone who's such a fan of these kinds of stories, I'm so thrilled every time I hear news like this because, look, I love superheroes. I'm happy for superheroes. It's great that we have the CG to tell superhero stories. But my goodness, there are so many other kinds of mythological, magical stories that we now have the technology to visualize. And so I, I very much hope that your story gets the visual treatment and may it be the start of many, many other actually good film slash television series about mythology, because I feel like there's not a lot so far, not to be too shady, but I've been kind of disappointed. Yeah, I have not watched the newest one. But it's true that I feel like a lot of the mythological retelling, it's just, I don't know what happens, but it feels like they don't have a lot of spark. Yeah, well, I think that if anybody's going to have spark, it's Cersei. So I'm wishing you and she many, many blessings and luck. And regardless of what happens, this book is so exquisite. Congratulations, Madeline, on all its success. And I hope it finds many, many more readers. Before we go, where can people find out more about you? Are you an Instagrammy, Twittery type person? Twitter and I are we we are having a separation. Um, <gasps> You're Twitter's breaking too stressful up with for Twitter. Me. Yeah, it, Twitter <laughs> is rude. It can be very rude. <laughs> but I love Instagram, and I I am on Instagram, and my website I post updates there sometimes. And that's your name, MadelineMiller.com? Yep, MadelineMiller.com. And oh my gosh, what's my Instagram? Um, I think it is. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll search for you and we'll find you. I'm sure <laughs> you won't you. be too hard to find. I imagine we'll see Cersei's bronze face gleaming at us from your page. <laughs> well, Madeline Miller, thank you so very much again for being here. It's been an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Madeline Miller for joining me and for writing such moving and magical masterpieces. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop me an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman and Chiquita Pascal. 
You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. And please subscribe to us on Apple Podcast and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really makes a big difference and it helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. And please consider pre-ordering my book, Waking the Witch. It comes out in June of this year. Thank you so much for listening, and Happy New Year! Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.